And he's like, you can't make me write. And I'm like, you're right, I can't. But I see you doodling on paper towels. What about if you carry a roll of paper towels around at school and tear one off and write on it? And he was like, I can do that. I'm like, let's start there. He spent a year writing on paper towels. Every day he would tear off a sheet and write his assignments down. And then we moved him after a year, we moved him into a planner. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Registration for the Spring 2021 ADHD Essentials Online Parent Coaching Groups is open. In these life-changing groups, you will work with me and your fellow group members via Zoom to talk about all of the parenting challenges brought about by ADHD and COVID-19. And you will learn effective ways to manage those challenges. The groups run for eight weeks on Mondays and Wednesdays. They begin on Monday, April 19th. There is one section at 1 p.m. Eastern and another at 5 p.m. Eastern. Each of the eight weeks has its own theme, which build upon each other as we go. Week one is practicing self-care. Week two, parenting is leadership. Week three, we look at fostering connection within the family and week four focuses on improving communication within the family. Week five is all about creating structures and systems that are ADHD friendly and will help your household run more smoothly. And in week six, we talk about how to manage anxiety. Week seven, we focus on my wall of awful model. And week eight is devoted to your questions because I'm not gonna get to everything in eight weeks and I wanna make sure I'm giving you as much value as I possibly can. And perhaps the most powerful part of these groups are the connections that you'll make with other parents facing similar struggles. Again, the groups will run for eight weeks on Mondays and on Wednesdays, with one section at 1 p.m. Eastern and another at 5 p.m. Eastern. They begin on Monday, May 19th and wrap up Wednesday, June 9th. Go to ADHDessentials.com slash parentgroups or email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com to register for a free information call today. The groups are already filling up. And of course, check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Kerb, and ADHD Diversified with MJ. In fact, you can join all of the members of the ADHD Rewired podcast network for a live Q&A on Tuesday, February 13th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Go to ADHDRewired.com dot com slash events for more details. And as usual, a big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies, who did the heavy lifting editing this episode. Learn more about his work at idealvideostrategies.com. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Leslie Josell of Order Out of Chaos. In addition to being an academic and life coach for teens and college students, Leslie is also the creator of the award-winning academic planner, A Tool for Time Management, 
She writes the weekly Dear ADHD Family Coach column for Attitude Magazine and is the author of several books. In fact, in this week's episode, Leslie is here to talk to us about her new book and to share her thoughts on procrastination. We discussed the role skills deficits play in procrastination, the importance of choice and control in getting past it, the trouble with oh-by-the-ways and don't-forgets, and why it's important to allow space for forgiveness. All right, let's get rolling. I'm Leslie Josell. I am an academic life coach for teens and college students with ADHD and LD, and I'm the owner of Order Out of Chaos. We are a virtual global company. Um, we provide workshops, webinars, products, and programs for parents and teachers to help them help their students be successful in learning and in life. Some of you might know me because I write the Dear ADHD Family Coach column for Attitude Magazine. It's a weekly column that comes out every Tuesday on the digital end. I've written about 170 columns. So a lot of people are like, okay, I know the name. And I love it because it's all about the dynamic in the family, not necessarily parent and child. I've written books, speak a lot. Some of you also might know me as the creator of the Academic Planner, a tool for time management, which is an academic planner that helps kids able to see their time. That's what I do. Been around for a really long time. <laughs> and I'm excited to have you on because you. I have not been around for a really long time and I stand on the shoulders of giants. Oh, no, you don't. You are a giant on your own. <laughs> I do. I completely do. I'm just way old. I'm just old. <laughs> I want to sort of point the audience towards your new book that's out, which is called How to Do It Now Because It's Not Going Away, An Expert Guide to Getting Stuff Done. It's awesome for a bunch of reasons, right? I My audience knows that I get a little English teacher dorky when I start talking about books that come out. <laughs> so one thing that I like is how you frame the book. There's literally a section called Before We Begin that any person with ADHD is probably going to skip right over. It's on page six. Don't skip it. Because there's four kind of critical hints that I share with everybody who works with me. I share it with the people who sign up for my parent coaching groups repeatedly. And I want to read them out loud here because it's all so true and important, even for folks listening to this podcast episode. Don't stress out because when you read a book and you're trying to get some content, you can stress out about it because there's going to be more than you can handle. That's the nature of books and workshops and podcasts and all that stuff. Don't try to absorb everything at once and immediately implement every single strategy discussed here. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. <laughs> Thank you. And you know what? A lot of people went, well, isn't that obvious? And I'm like, absolutely not. No, it's not. And particularly when you're talking to teens and college students and you're talking to students that might not be neurotypical. So no, that is not obvious. And to me, that needed to be like poster size in the book before we began. And this one too, right? This next one, because number three is don't think these solutions are intended as a quick fix. Yep. You're just pumping the brakes on ADHD all over the place. And interestingly, and I want to make this clear, the book was as much as like, there are a lot of those with ADHD who are getting a lot out of it. It was written for, it was written for all able learners. And I really want to make that clear. Um, but yet written, I think it's almost like the sneaky chef who like stuffed zucchini in the brownies. It's there, but you don't really see it or taste it. So yes, although the book is written for all able learners, it's got ADHD stamped or executive functioning, I should say, stamped all over the book. So I appreciate that you picked up on that. And the final one, don't think you need to be on a schedule. 
I am a real believer on that. And that runs a little counter to stuff later on in the book where you're like, here's how to make a schedule. Walk me through that. Yes, I do believe that for some of us, scheduling is really important, obviously, for future awareness. What what I meant by being on a schedule was feeling when you read the book that I had to absorb this by Monday, have this done by Wednesday. The book was intended almost as a manual. What I love about the book, if you can even say that as an author, this I've written three books. This is my this is the latest. And it's the one I love the most because I felt like I had the most control on how it was written. And I wanted each chapter to stand on its own. I wanted it to be almost like a manual that a student could pick up and say, okay, I'm having trouble right now in my world with time, or I'm having trouble with planning, or I'm even having trouble with my emotions. What chapter can I look at to help me with that? That's what I meant by a schedule. I mean, yes, you can read it all the way through linearly, but it's we don't all think that way. So if you want to read chapter seven, because that speaks to you, the, let's say you want to read about organizing first, rock on. If you want to then go to homework, you know, do it. That's what I meant by being being on a schedule. That And that makes sense. Okay. And I'm going to go one better than where you went. Okay. Keep going. I love it. Where you said that you can kind of start with any chapter. Yes. I want to validate that. That's totally true. But I'm going to go even beyond that and say that one of the powers of this book is that, first of all, it's like 150 pages long-ish, right? It's not a very long book. No, purposely. The other thing that's great about it, beyond that you can start with any chapter, you can open this book to any page and find something useful and actionable right away. There's the chance you're going to open it to a page and you're going to go, I already know that. Like that might happen. Of course. But it's small bite-sized chunks of information that are useful kind of regardless. Like it's almost a, in some ways it's a guide to life only on the kind of the more academic side of life. So school, productivity, that kind of stuff, as opposed to, I don't know, romance and relationships. Although it probably can do that job too. I am going to say that I'm going to actually respectfully disagree. Okay. So there is only two chapters in the book that are academic based. There is a homework chapter and there's a study skills chapter because you've got to. So the one thing I want to make clear about this book, it was written to teens and college students. Every parent I know is reading it, but it was, it was the first book that I've written that I actually wrote to students because that's my world. But there's only, out of all the chapters, there's really only two that are dedicated to academics. And something you and I spoke about prior to getting on here was that everything going on mostly is a life skill. So routines, rituals, organizing, productivity, time, emotions, even distractions, I view that as life skills. So I just wanted to defend my book. I feel like I'm defending my thesis. No, and I I agree with you. Feel like I'm, def- I'm kidding. I feel like I'm defending a thesis, but I, I, again, that was very intentional because it's written for teens and college students and some, some college students already have one foot out the door. I didn't want the book to be academic, a hundred percent academic. I wanted it to be able to instill life skills that, okay, I might be 21 at this point. I might not need the study skill, but I sure as heck need the organizing and productivity and that from it so that the book had legs. And I completely agree. Okay. (laughs) I didn't say academic, meaning purely school. No, I know. But I totally agree that it's more of a life skill. Yeah. That's why you can kind of open it up to any page and find something valuable, right? Is because these are life skills. They're not specific to school. No. And I'm going to even say this. And 
the book's actually fun. And I, I think that's a funny thing to say about a book about procrastination and why it's fun. And I take no credit for the fun. The fun is because I, number one, we infused it with a lot of my stories and the kids just, I feel, pop up on this, pop up on the page. Their stories like what was the, you know, what was presented possibly as the issue. And I think that's an important point. Like what was maybe the parents said is the issue. And then when we dug deep, what we found and how we work with them. But all through the book is these things called the classroom confessionals. And what what you might not know is I went back and when I say we, my team and I went back, I've been at this for, I've been coaching for 12 years now. So we went back and almost tried to find almost every student that I had coached. And we obviously couldn't find all of them, but we found a ton of them and we gave them a questionnaire. And some of the questions were very, you know, like, what would you say was your biggest reason for procrastinating? Meaning like real, real, you know, deep, deep questions. And others were just really fun and funny, like, what was the best grade you ever got for something you didn't spend any time on? Or when was the, you know, when did your friends come and clutch for you at the last minute? Things that students are completely relating to and really give parents, I think, that other layer of, okay, I'm having a front row seat to what my child is feeling and experiencing. So there's that fun element and that three-dimensional element that I think speaks to kids or teens, you might say, more than my voice. Classroom confessionals. What's the strangest place you've ever studied? I run through vocabulary while I'm in the bathroom. <laughs> Jeremy, college freshman. <laughs> right? I mean, there's some, there's some, like, I'm going to say this was a little controversial. Someone, like, we asked, what's, what's your favorite snack when you're studying? And some kid wrote Ritalin. Wow. <laughs> And you know what? I I mean, here's a little fun fact. My publisher was like, really? I'm like, we're leaving it in because you know what? We need to tell the truth. I spend all day with this population. And sometimes like people will joke and say, Leslie, you're 18 and a 50 year old body. But I really felt like there is no book that's telling this stories. They might be the soundbite story or they might be the case study story. But the story that resonates the most, and I think this is really important for your parents to hear is when, and I'm, I'm trying to be careful because we make academic planners, but this is actually very indicative of what I hear where parents come to us and say, I want my child to write in a planner. I want my child to write in a planner. And I'm like, first of all, that's not a goal. That's a system, right? Writing in the planner is a system to a goal. The goal isn't to write in the planner. The goal is for your child to see their time or see their assignments or see everything in one place so they can manage it. The planner might be just a system. And writing in a planner in my world is considered two steps. You want your kid to write something down and you want them to write them in a planner. Possibly your child's not even writing anything down yet. So we can't even talk planner. And there's a case study in there where I talk about a 16 year old boy who was, you know, feisty and giving in a member. I'm, I can give it as good as I get it. <laughs> I'm a New York girl with a lot of, never rude, but I am feisty. And he's like, you can't make me write. And I'm like, you're right, I can't. But I see you doodling on paper towels. What about if you carry a roll of paper towels around at school and tear one off and write on it? And he was like, I can do that. I'm like, let's start there. And he spent a year writing on paper towels. Every day he would tear off a sheet and write his assignments down. But he had it. And then we moved him after a year, believe it or not, because he had finally gotten into the habit of writing. We moved him into a planner. That story is for some reason the one that resonates the most with not only students, but with parents. 
It's listening to the student, letting them go on the journey the way they felt they could, and a parent going, I, I would never in a million years ever allow my child to write. So there it is. It's the parent perspective, the student perspective, and kind of bringing it to the forefront in the book. It's telling stories, but there's a lot of lessons and, as you said, sound bites and you know digestible tips behind it. There's permission in that story, too. There's permission to think outside of the box. There's permission to do things a little bit differently. There's permission to find what you really want to do and then get to it by whatever road is appropriate. In my parent coaching groups, one of the things we do is we work on developing systems and structures that are going to help the family more effectively do the things they need to do. I had a mom who wanted to do evening dinner with the family five nights a week. She's trying it. She's trying. It's not happening. So I come back. I'm like, well, okay, cool. What's going on? And she's like, well, my husband has hockey and my kid, my one kid is in the band and another kid's in a play and like no one's ever home to have dinner together. We can never get everyone together. And I was like, well, can you do it at breakfast? Sure enough. Every morning. Every morning they're having breakfast together. And the point is connection. The point is that time together. Of course. But dinner's like the romantic thing that's in the news that everyone expects. And breakfast is like not looked at in the same way. But we get the job done with whatever road works. Exactly. As I said, I write a lot and I speak a lot. And some people will say, Leslie, I know you. You're the girl. It's okay. Who tells kids to do math in the bath. So I am all about out of the box creative, not traditional ways of doing things that work for your student's brain. So for me, I'm all about movement, particularly now, especially now moving around. So I have kids who are doing homework in the bathtub. I have kids who are sitting on top of the toilet. I have kids, I have kids under the kitchen table with, you know, brothers and sisters running around because that's what speaks to them. So to your point, exactly. It's not about traditional. Most, we know that a lot of those traditional do not work for our students. It's really about giving your students as much choice and control. A lot of that came out of the book as well. When we interviewed all these students, we found that a lot of their procrastination stems from a lack of skill, right? I equate it to your child might have weak executive functioning, and that's the equivalent of them being able to lift a two pound weight. That's as much as their brain can do. And they're being asked to lift a five or 10 pound weight, right? They're asked to be doing things that just don't work for them. The other thing I remind parents of is your students are being asked to do things out of their control, like what they have to do, when they have to do it, where they have to do it. So a lot of it is skill-based. Bottom line, if your child doesn't know how to study, all the go upstairs and studying or studying more mantras, save your breath. Ain't going to work. It's just not. So that's something also that I am as much choice and control as we can give our students to make those decisions, where do you want to work? You want to work in the bathtub? Rock on. I'll get you a pillow and, you know, get your science done. Like we have seen so much success in that. If I dare to say this, it might sound a little controversial, but to know me is to know that I definitely have a point of view. The one sliver of silver lining that has come out of this past year is that some of our students have had more choice and control because they're home. And they've been able to say, I'm, I'm hanging upside down. I'm lying on the floor. I'm not doing math at eight o'clock in the morning in a classroom. I can start at seven o'clock at night. I can take my, listen to my, you know, my synchronous classes in the bathtub. That has worked for me. So 
that whole like parents holding on, I want, I, I feel like there's a theme in this book about choice and control for your students. Yeah. And one of the things that I talk about with usually teachers, sometimes parents is when we label a kid as lazy, the only person who's being lazy is the person providing that label. Because when we say that a kid or an adult is lazy, we're not making the effort to figure out what's really going on. I don't believe in lazy. You read that first chapter in my book when I said about being called lazy. That's amazing. I want to play with that now, right? Because I think that's critical. I've been saying that since I was a teacher and I've gotten better at how I say it. I'm ready to learn from you. But where, well, I'm going right back to your book. I'm sticking with your stuff. What I love is in that first chapter, page 11, ladies and gentlemen, um, it's actually right next to that classroom confessional that I read earlier, is you have this procrastination model where you kind of explode procrastination out. And if we look at procrastination and just substitute the word lazy, because that's kind of what happens, right? There's all of these other elements that go into quote unquote lazy or procrastination that give us a clue about where to start to figure out why is this kid procrastinating or why is this adult procrastinating? And you've got things like difficulty sustaining effort, perfectionism, no planning or prioritizing, lack of study skills, overwhelmed, a lack of time management, distractions, decision fatigue. Which is a good one. Yeah, lack of routines and rituals, emotions, disorganization, difficulty sustaining effort, I would add in Difficulty regulating energy, which is kind of effort and also kind of maybe a little bit of a hair split going on there. That's the only thing I didn't see on here that I was like, that one, it's awesome. It's awesome. That means a lot from you because, okay, so fun fact, I wrote the book and this chapter was the last, the first chapter is always the last chapter you write. Coming right, I'm talking to a, an English teacher. I, you know, the book was written out of order, and then I waited, and I'm like, okay, this is what to me was the most important. And yet, you talk lazy, and I feel like you're in my head because, so you know, I write columns for attitude, and I what wrote one column where mom said, I think my kid is lazy, and we talked a lot about this whole thing about sustaining effort, and could it be, and like what that means and what that looks like, and I am just on your page exactly. And I say that on page nine in the book that your child is not lazy. We're all a little lazy. Yes, we all like, you know, need to relax and all that. But it was more like your kid is, has this perception of themselves because they're hearing it all day long that either they're lazy or they're stupid, which is a word that I don't like. So I apologize for using it, but I'm not using it to call anybody that I'm using it. Like we have words at order out of chaos that students are not allowed to use. That is one of them. I don't know is another one, actually. We like either you know or you don't. And if you don't, how are we going to figure it out? But stupid, weak, lazy are all words that I just think are, ooh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're, um, they're triggers. They're real triggers. And, they're, and to me, as you said, they're lazy because they're not allowing us to dig deep. And, and my feeling about procrastination is procrastination doesn't live alone. There, it is a mask to a multitude of other things going on. And as you said, these are just some smattering. So that is kind of the premise also that what is it that's truly getting in your student's way? So a lot, you know, so we did tackle some of these, not all of them, because to your point, we had to keep it to 150 
words. You will see through the, to me, the whole theme of the book is your child's not lazy. They might be lacking skill. And there's a big difference there. And that's a big aha moment for parents that they don't realize that, you know, I have this saying, and I think you'll like it as a teacher, telling is not teaching. Does your kid understand? It's one thing we're very good as parents to ask our children, do we know what, do you know what you need to do? Yeah, I have to finish my math sheet. I have some vocab words. I have to write my English paper. I'm going to bring that up. Okay, great. But do you understand what is being asked of you? That question doesn't get asked a lot, particularly for our students. And that to me is where the massive disconnect is. And sometimes I feel that's might be where lazy, the perception of lazy lives. So I'm so happy that resonated with you because that was very important to me. As a guy who's homeschooling his kids due to COVID mm. and not homeschooling in the like, my kids are going to virtual class and then I'm right. supporting them. That's not homeschooling. I'm homeschooling. I'm doing the curriculum. I'm executing all of the lessons. They are not in public school right now. They will be next year, but they're not right now. One of the lessons I've learned is the importance of making sure kids know what you want them to do, because there are times when like an ADHD dad, I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off. I'm trying to get them settled and squared away on an assignment that I'm like, they can do this on their own. And that means I can go meet with a client. I can go record a podcast episode. I can do the parent coaching groups. I can do a workshop, that stuff, right? And sometimes I think that I've made it clear to them what I want them to do, but I am not there for the first five or 10 minutes of when they're starting and they're stuck and can't continue. Luckily, we have the kind of relationship where if I go upstairs an hour later and they're like, we had no idea what you wanted us to do. I'm not like, Brah! right. I'm oh, like, right. cool. Okay. Then I did it wrong. Like that's on me. And I've gotten better at communicating with them. It gives you intel also. Right. It gives you a lot of intel. And I, we do a lot of questions. I, I teach parents in my groups, a lot of how to ask your students questions. And that question of, do you understand is a head scratcher. Not, I'm not disparaging parents. I am one too. Like I trust me, if my kids were sitting here right now, they'd be like, okay, trust me. She needs to check herself at the door too sometimes, but um, that I don't understand question. Cause again, I, I feel like we're going from a two pound, I keep referencing that two pound weight to a five pound weight. Your child being able to recite what it is they have to do is that is to me, the equivalent of a two pound weight. It's a to-do list. So all it is is memorizing some stuff. Someone told them they had to do. Remember, I'm all, about, I'm all about skill here. Do you understand is all about skill. And that's the five, six, 10 pound weight. The other thing I talk a lot, and I, it's, this isn't in the book, but it's something I think you might appreciate. And I told you we have a lot of sound bites in order and chaos. The other one is the whole thing with parents with the, I call them the, oh, by the ways and don't forgets right? How we're walking out of a room or your students walking out of a room and you're going, oh, by the way, don't forget. Well, of course they're not going to, of course they're going to forget because number one, did they hear you? Did they understand it? Did they remember it? There's so, can they, there's so many things that, that go into that. It's similar to the, I don't, I don't understand. And that sends me to power and control in two different ways. One part of why I can just go upstairs and be like, oh, cool. You didn't understand what you needed to do. I didn't communicate it clearly. That's on me. Let's fix it. And we, we lost an hour. Who cares? Right. Is because I don't typically feel like I need a lot of power and control. So I don't take it as a challenge to my authority. When my kids are like, we didn't do the thing. 
we didn't understand. I don't automatically assume that they're that we're in a power conflict. Not everybody does that. Teachers, parents, bosses at work. Not everyone does that. Some people take that stuff personally and take it as a as an insult or take it as a challenge to their power and control. So that's in there. And then oftentimes the, oh, by the ways, not as much power, more control. And it's not even necessarily trying to control your kid. It's trying to control a situation, right? It's like, oh, I'm forgetting that we're going to have dinner at 5.30. And if I don't tell you at 3.30 about what's unique about dinner and how I need you to eat it anyway, even though I'm not sure you're going to like it, Right. I'm trying to control 5:30 in like 48 seconds as we pass through this moment. Exactly. And that doesn't work. No, and I think to your point too and I'm going to go back to that other point is the telling is not teaching. So if I need my child to rem- I'm going to make it as simple as possible here if if I need my child to remember something the oh by the ways and don't forget is not going to do that for you. It's only going to make you angry. It's only going to make you frustrated. And it's to me, it's it's an unnecessary frustration because did you give your child the tools to really remember and solidify the information you wanted to impart? So that's like, to me, parenting 101, like, are you telling or are you teaching? So if there's something you want them to remember, the question better is, how are you going to remember it? I love questions because, again, I think questions you are... I don't ever want to use the word force, but I'm, I'm saying it in a good way. Like you're kind of taking what you're feeling and you're kind of like transferring it to your child so that they can figure stuff out on their own. That isn't always perfect because I am by far a truth teller. I'm a realist. I'm out of the box thinker. And that keeps me wrapping back to the word skill. Like to be able to do that is a skill both for you and your parent and your child. It takes time and it takes work. And I know this is going to sound funny too. Like, I feel like this is what we need to be focusing on. These are the skills. Like we're all really good at like teaching our kids soccer and teaching our kids how to drive and doing all these things. This is the skills that we really need to be spending time on. I completely agree. And we don't think of them as skills. No, we don't. Like that's part of the challenge is so much of the basic building blocks of a successful adult, the adulting skills. So much of that, you're not explicitly taught. You're supposed to just figure it out as you go. That stuff doesn't get taught in school. You don't have a class on like paying bills and staying in contact with acquaintances and finding a job and presenting yourself respectfully and with dignity and being high value, high quality person. That stuff doesn't get taught explicitly. So we don't think of them as skills because a skill is something that you get explicitly taught, but they're still all skills and they can all be explicitly taught. That's why coaches exist. Cause we're like, we found this hole in the universe and we teach those skills. Completely. I agree with you. Like when I tell parents that I teach their students how to work, they're like, you do what? I'm like, your child was never taught. Like We don't even need to talk about kids in school, but I know plenty of 21 and 22 year olds who are now transferring into real jobs who look at me and go, no one is teaching me how to work. I don't know like what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how I'm supposed to ask questions. I don't know how to balance my deadlines. I don't know how I'm supposed to communicate with people on my team. I don't even know how to set up a work ritual. So that's a big question. I'm so happy you said that because 
all of this to me is the what underlines procrastination on so many levels because again it's all this skill based is you know can my is my brain overloaded is my brain overwhelmed do i have too much that i have to there's that decision fatigue if i have too much that i have to figure out on my own i've got a 40 pound boulder on me and i'm like put a fork in me i'm done is your child lazy no they might just be overloaded having to figure out something they might not have been taught how to do so on your page yeah and when you bring into that rejection sensitivity a lot of that stuff becomes even harder, right? Going back to that, I have a new job and it's like a real job. If I'm starting a career, I know because I this happened to me. If I'm starting a career and I am not sure what I'm supposed to do, I'm afraid to ask because if I ask, now other people know that I don't know what I'm doing. Exactly. And I might lose my job because isn't that what's supposed to happen? Aren't you supposed to get fired when you don't know what you're doing? And that's not real like that's not reality your boss wants you to succeed let them know if you're not sure what's going on so they can help you succeed exactly and if they don't you don't want to work there anyway but it took me until i was like in my 40s to figure that out i love that and i bring that back to students too who are who are afraid to ask their teachers or professors about something so again oh my god i'm loving this conversation because you know, where does procrastination mask itself? It could be as simple as you have a student who's fearful of asking their professor for explicit instructions or clarification. Let's talk about that for a minute on an assignment and therefore chooses not to do it or put it off until there's a natural consequence, which is my definition of procrastination. There has to be a natural consequence attached to it. That is not everybody agrees with me, but that is mine. So it's these types of nuanced skills that I think as sometimes, again, I'm not throwing any parent under the bus. You and I are both parents and are, I still say, and my kids are flown and grown, I am a work in progress still, but it's these nuances that we have to remember. And like, I check myself constantly and say, even do my kids know how to do that? And a lot of parents come back and say, but I had to figure it out on my own. Well, rock on. That's great. I'm so proud of you. And I mean that, but not every kid can. The I had to figure it out on my own makes me twitch. Like it enrages me. And this is, you can tell I'm a teacher because of this, right? And that I'm, that I'm like- Yes, a, you are. Yes, yes. I'm like captain caregiver, right? Because I'm like, what you're saying is I had to suffer and everyone else should have to suffer too. And I, I can't relate to that. I'm like, no, no, I had to suffer. And so I can keep other people from suffering because I did that and I can help them not have to suffer. And why would I want everybody to suffer? Like that's just not where I live. I am all for pick a challenge and struggle through it. Do that. Yes, because you will get stronger and that is important. But you don't need to suffer unnecessarily. I agree. Like, and I know I'm splitting a hair here. Does that make sense? No, you're not. It makes total sense to me. And I was going to end with this, but we're going to throw it in now. You know, we do a lot of parent coaching, parent groups similar to you, a lot of conversation in our Facebook group. And I've always felt this way, but I think this year in particular. I think when you are presented with something from your, from your child, I say student, that's what, that's our work. So I'm trying to change that here. When you, when you're presented with something with your child that you might not particularly think was the right thing, or you feel like there's a teaching moment here. I, my feeling is there's always two steps in this process. The first one is to, is just to, to give grace and be empathetic. And then there's the teaching moment. And they don't necessarily need to happen. (laughs) So you know how that made you twitchy? This is Leslie's twitch. 
They don't need to happen at the same time. And that's something that, you know, I am very careful. My, my son is 23, so I'm, I'm, I respect his privacy. But as a child, there was definitely a time when it was appropriate just to be, um, give him grace and be empathetic or say nothing. And then we bring in the teaching moment. Teaching moments are useful. I never want to say to a parent, you don't have the right to parent your child. You have the right to parent your child. You don't always have the right to parent them at the moment you think you should be parenting them. You just said that that doesn't have to happen at the same time. I do workshops on this one. This is like a mod. This has been a thing for me for the past year or so. I've been playing with this. You don't have to do them at the same time. In fact, you shouldn't because there is a proper order in which to do those things. I split all communication. Don't care what it is down into two lenses. Sometimes they happen at the same time, but when we're problem solving, which is what you're describing, the first step is always emotional. You're always navigating the emotions underneath. So that's forgiveness, that's compassion, that's empathy, that's connection. It's that stuff, grace. Once you've got the emotions regulated and managed, then we shift into the academic problem-solving fixing mode. And that's critical. And here's why, ladies and gentlemen, I have not said this on the podcast yet. This is kind of a gigantic thing that literally makes people cry when I talk about it. And, and like is a gut punch in my parent coaching groups. And it and one of, I have one day that ends in a gut punch and it's this particular point. When our kids are having a problem, their emotions are spiked, they're full of anxiety and they're coming back down from that anxiety and we're trying to help them, right? If we skip the forgive stage and jump right to the fix stage, what happens is we haven't repaired that relationship. And so- the forgiving feels contingent on the fix. So our kids feel like the only way to repair that relationship is for them to fix the problem, whatever that problem may be. If they had the skills to fix that problem on their own, they probably would not have gotten it trapped in that problem to begin with. So it's safe to assume they don't have those skills. And the person they're most likely to turn for help is us, but they're not going to because that relationship remains damaged. And the only way that it seems like they can get that relationship to be repaired is by fixing the problem that they don't have the skills to fix. So that's why we've got to forgive first so we can then support them in fixing the problem. I love it. I think you took what I said and just made it sound way better. So I uh, way, way, way better because <laughs> I, I love it. I speak like you do. Like I have this whole thing with time and I tell parents, your child needs to pause, picture and pace. Like I'm all about peas. I'm all about like, so I agree with you that forgive versus fix. And I think you, you actually synthesized it or distilled it way better than I was doing in the sense of saying that they don't have to have, they shouldn't happen at the same time. So I love that. Thank you. I love that you, you shared that. Yeah. I mean, I've got a whole book full of you synthesizing things better than I have. So thank you for that. <laughs> No. Well, it's funny. It's like kind of like when, you know, you learned at the beginning about, you know, there are times when I know for me, even in our groups and even for, as a parent, I have to be still. I have to be still. And I will check myself. And I'm going to say this, like, I'm a fixer by nature. It's just who I am and what I do. And sometimes that's actually, and, and we're all sitting here going like, right now, like I want to be that fixer because look how much our kids are going through. And sometimes you need to take that step back and just give, as you said, be sensitive, be emotional, just allow that forgiveness to be there. And then the teaching, the teaching moment will come later. And that for me 
considering, and I'm, I'm going to share this because I don't know if you have, I'm, I'm assuming you do. I had, you know, I had a child who now he's 23 and he's awesome and God bless him. But, you know, he definitely struggled as a young kid, struggled with his emotions, struggled with regulating his emotions, a lot of struggle. And I had to learn just to be still so that he could become still as well. Not easy task, I know, but um, probably my biggest like teaching moment for me was being able to learn how to do that for him. Just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? As you can tell, and I think this is why you and I really get along, is I have these mantras, sound bites, sayings, not only for my students, so they can remember it, but for parents too, so that they hear me in their head. Here's my belief. I believe that it is up to the parent to set parameters with their children. Now, obviously, as you know, the parameter for your child, maybe if they're eight, is going to be smaller. As they get older, it gets larger because we want to give privilege and responsibility. But the second half of that is that your child's job, it's the parent's job to set those parameters, but it's your child's job to negotiate them. So I really want parents to remember that, that your child coming to the table, asking why, counterbalancing what you're saying is healthy, it's vital, it's important, it's necessary, it's problem solving. So don't discount that. It is your job to set the parameter, but it's their job to negotiate it. Here's a mantra we have. It's not what your child asks for, it's how they handle the no. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.